Turn in your Bibles this morning to the 18th chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus 18 this morning. I'm going to be reading verses 8 through 11 as we get started today. The words will appear on the screens behind me. I encourage you always to be turning there in your own Bible so you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, come and talk to me before you leave. We'll make sure you have one before you go. Listen to the word of the Lord. Exodus 18. 8 through 11. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in that way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer again today? Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to your people, for showing yourself to be stronger than all the gods stronger than all of the idols of this world, stronger than the idols of our own hearts and lives. We pray that you will continue to show yourself strong in that way, continue to topple the idols which we always tend to erect. Do that, Lord, we pray, so that we can see your glory as your servants do in this chapter and be changed in the same way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. At the heart of our relationship with God is our vision of God's glory. I want you to digest those words briefly this morning. That's what we're going to be considering as we go through this passage. At the heart of our relationship with God is our vision, our understanding, our encounter with God's glory. We have been considering God's rescue of his people his deliverance of his people from, from slavery in Egypt. We saw the plagues on Egypt. We saw the parting of the Red Sea. We saw the defeat of the Egyptian military in the Red Sea. Last week, we saw God's miraculous provision for his people in the wilderness. We saw how when they were hungry, he gave them bread from heaven, manna to eat. And how when they were thirsty, he, he caused water to come from the rock for them to drink. And, and, and how when they were when they were weary, he sustained them and, and how he, he delivered them from the hand of military defeat, from the Amalekites. We saw that last week, too. We saw, we've been seeing throughout the book of Exodus, God's deliverance of his people, God's miraculous rescue of his people. And all of it is, according to God, all of it is for the purpose of showing his glory to the world. As he says to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, 16, for this very purpose I have raised you up to show my power in you so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why God's doing all of this, so that his name will be proclaimed in all the earth, so that all the earth will know, as Jethro says here, that he is greater than all the gods. And that knowledge that he is greater than all the gods is seen uh, by his people here in this, in this chapter. Uh, in verse 1 of chapter 18, we are reintroduced to this man, Jethro. In fact, I'm just going to read the first five verses of Exodus 18. 
because it really sets the context for what we're going to be talking about through the rest of the chapter. It says, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt, how Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he had said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. We're reintroduced to this character, Jethro. We, we encountered him first in chapter 2, and there his, his name was given to us as Ruel, you might remember, the priest of Midian, and he's called Jethro a few chapters later in chapter 4, as he is here. Skeptical commentators have looked at this passage and said, well, here's evidence, once again, that the Bible contradicts itself. We have two different names for this man. But of course, it doesn't take a whole lot of faith. It doesn't take a whole lot of conservative scholarship to realize that even in the ancient Near East, it wasn't uncommon for one person to have more than one name. And so faithful Bible commentators generally assume that Jethro is this man's given name and that Ruel, as he's named in chapter 2, is, was probably um, an honorific related to his role as a priest of Midian or maybe it was some kind of a clan name or a tribal name. But it's the same person in any case. Other skeptical commentators look at this account and, and pose all kinds of explanations for why Zipporah, Moses' wife, and Moses' two sons are with Jethro rather than with Moses. But the simplest explanation of that, I think, is also the best, that, that Moses had, had sent his wife and children away to live with her father while he was going through the encounter with Pharaoh in Egypt for safety's sake, for propriety's sake. And now that things have apparently settled down... <laughs> As, as much as they are going to in the near future, Jethro is bringing Moses' wife and family back to him. With that in mind, we're going to look at this encounter between Jethro and Moses now, and we're going to see how God's glory changes them. We're going to see how God's glory first changes Jethro, and we're going to see how God's glory changes Moses, because God's glory changes his people. God's glory affects his people. That's what is at the heart of our relationship with God. It's our vision of God's glory. So join with me as I, as I look at this passage and see how God's glory changes his people. First of all, consider how God's glory changes Jethro. Look what happens when, when Jethro first comes to Moses. Look at Exodus 18, verse 6. He, that is Jethro, sent word to Moses. I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. And the passage goes on, as we've read about already this morning. What we see here in this, in this encounter is that Moses begins by greeting his father-in-law with all appropriate decorum and respect, right? He demonstrates appropriate respect and deference. Now, I think this is important to note because... If anyone had a reason for, for arrogance or for uh, demanding respect himself, I would think it would be Moses at this point. Moses is the titular leader of this nation of people, which is a, a, a small nation to be sure, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a nation. It's thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands, depending on how we read it. And Moses is, for all intents and purposes, the king. I mean, he doesn't go by the title king, and he would have rejected that title himself if he were asked, but, but he's acting as king. He's leading the people, as we're going to see as the passage goes forward. He's judging the people. He's the leader. Uh, if anyone deserves respect 
and deference from another human being, it's Moses. And so it's, it's instructive, I think, that when Moses' father-in-law comes, Moses shows him respect and deference. Moses goes out to meet him. It says in verse 7, he bowed down and kissed him. There's appropriate deference, appropriate respect. There's appropriate hospitality that is shown. They go into the tent, and, and um, there's a meal that's described later, as, as we'll read about in a few minutes. And and that was, of course, common in the ancient Near East. And, and today, in Eastern cultures as well, hospitality is so vitally important. And, and that's what Moses is showing to his father-in-law Jethro. And then, as Moses shows this respect and deference to his father-in-law, Moses then begins to share what we would call his testimony with Jethro, doesn't he? He tells Jethro about God's glorious salvation of his people. Moses told his father-in-law, verse 8, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. He tells Jethro about everything that's happened. Now Jethro, according to verse 1, has heard already about some of it, but I take this to mean that Moses is now telling him more of the details. Jethro's hearing it from Moses' own lips about all that God has done. I can picture it, can't you? Can, can you picture the two of them sitting in, their, in, in one of those elaborate tents that's common in, to this day in Eastern cultures, sitting over their, their drinks, over their meals, and Moses is talking to Jethro, telling him about the plagues telling him about the, the Nile River turning to blood, one of the greatest water sources in that part of the world turning to blood and all of, the, all of the sea life in it dying and stinking. Moses telling Jethro about the plagues, the frogs and the gnats and the lice and the boils and the hail and the fire from heaven and the, and the, and the darkness. You can picture, you can almost hear Moses telling his father-in-law about about the slaying of the firstborn, how God avenges his people, how God avenged his people against the slaughter of their own children by taking away the firstborn of Egypt, and how God had protected his people, protected Israel, by ordaining the slaughter of the Passover lambs. I can, I can hear Moses telling Jethro about the, the lamb's blood that was smeared on the doorposts and the lintel and how the, the angel of death passed over them. Moses, no doubt, is telling Jethro about the encounter at the Red Sea and the miraculous parting of the sea, the the piling up of the waters on the right and on the left, and Israel going through on dry ground. Maybe he tells him what it was like to stand at the top of of, of the sea bank and stretch his hands and the staff over the sea as the waters come crashing back to drown the military might of the greatest power of the known world. Moses spends his time telling Jethro about the water from the rock. Telling him about the the bread from heaven, the manna, and the quail. I don't know, maybe sometime during Jethro's visit, they went out together in the morning and together collected some of that manna. Jethro saw it and tasted it for himself. He tells him about the defeat of the Amalekites and how that was orchestrated and brought about by God through the hands of the Israelite army. I wonder if at some point in the conversation, Moses takes Jethro out to the opening of the tent and points to the distance and shows him the pillar of smoke and fire that stood at the head of the camp, the tangible, visible presence of God. Moses 
shares all of this, points it all out to Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, the priest of a pagan religion, the priest of strange gods. Moses shares all of this about Yahweh, the one true God. This is Moses, this is Moses' testimony. That's what we would call it. It's testimony. I wonder, what does your, what does your testimony look like? Now, I know, we, we read this, and we go, well, I can't, I can't hold a candle to this. I mean, certainly, if I could point to a pillar of smoke and fire, that would make my testimony a lot more powerful, right? I know, I know, I, I get that. But I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to consider that, that you have a testimony of miraculous deliverance of God that's every bit as powerful as this, if we're able to see it that way. We have a testimony to, to share with people of how God delivered us from slavery to sin. And that is a miracle. That did not come about because you are smarter or more spiritually inclined than others. It happened because God broke into your heart and changed you. It's a miracle of God. And so you can point to that when you share your testimony with others. You can tell other people about God's deliverance of you from slavery to sin. You can point to what Jesus has done. And this is true even if your personal testimony is not uh, spectacular in, in the sense of, of being changed from some kind of reprobate sinner and drunk and philanderer and now you're clean and, and perfect and everything. Even if your testimony is much simpler than that, even if your testimony is one of, of being raised in, in, a, in a Christian home and being saved early in your life, your testimony is still one of God's miraculous deliverance. And all of that is actually kind of beside the point anyway, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, our testimony is less about what we have experienced, and it is more about who God is. Isn't that right? So when we talk about sharing our testimony, you know, we shouldn't be focusing anyway on all the ways that we have changed or all the things that we experience or all the things that we feel or know. We should be spending our time focusing on what God has done for us in Christ. When we share our testimony, we can point to the fact that God has become a man for our sake. That God, in Christ Jesus, lived a perfect life. Right? And that though he was himself the author of life, he was life incarnate. He submitted himself to death. He absorbed death into himself as a substitute. For us, we can talk about the fact that this Jesus, this God-man who died, who was life, but who became death for us, then showed his victory over death by rising from the dead three days later and ascended to heaven where he sits now at the right hand of God, interceding for us. And from whence he shall come, as the creeds tell us, to judge the living and the dead. You see, we can point to those things. These are great truths. Our testimony at the end of the day should be more about the objective facts of what God has done for us and less about our, our relative experiences anyway. All of which is simply to say that we also have a testimony, just like Moses has, and we can share it with others, just like Moses shares it with, with Jethro. And the result of Moses sharing all these truths about God, of God's deliverance, the result of that for Jethro is that he's converted. I think we see Jethro converted in this chapter. 
Look at, look at the way it describes Jethro's response in verse 9. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, blessed be the Lord. That is, blessed be Yahweh who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. This coming from the priest of foreign gods. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Jethro is led to conversion. I think we see three evidences of his conversion here. First is that he rejoices. Verse 9, right? He rejoices. He rejoices in this depiction of the glory of God. And in his joy, he is led second to worship. He worships God as a result of seeing his glory. He speaks words of praise. Blessed be the Lord. Now I know that the Lord is greater These are words of worship, words of praise. And notice, Jethro's praise, Jethro's worship is not not merely emotional, nor is it merely rational. It's both. Both his mind and his heart are are involved in this worship. He's he's rejoicing. I think that that describes his emotional state. He feels joy. He feels pleasure. He, He feels bliss at the thought of the greatness and the glory of God. He rejoices. But he also makes this statement of his, his rational comprehension of God. Now I know that the Lord is greater. In other words, it's not just an emotional response, a feeling in his heart. And it's not just a mental response, an intellectual assent to truth. It's both. And friends, let me just encourage you that both ought to be present in our hearts too. We ought not to have zeal that's not in accordance with knowledge. That's what Paul condemns his countrymen for in his day. But neither should we have knowledge that has no zeal attached to it. That's empty religion. We need an intellectual assent. We need to understand the things of the word. We need to see God and understand who he is and, and, and know what he says about himself in the word. And that then should cause us to feel joy and pleasure at who God is. And I think we see that in Jethro here. And then third, so so he's led first to rejoice, he's led second to worship, and third, he's led to obey. Isn't it interesting? Jethro offers sacrifices in verse 12. He offers burnt offerings and sacrifices to God. He obeys the Lord. What changed Jethro? Why has Jethro gone from being the priest of Midian, by which I I think it means he's a priest of Midianite gods. There are those who who presume that Jethro was kind of like Melchizedek, that he was a remnant, that he was a holdout worshiper of Yahweh, like Melchizedek was. But I I don't think that's right. I don't think that's the simplest reading of this passage. There were Midianite religions. It was a pagan religion. And I think it's simplest and best to understand that that's what Jethro was. He was a priest of a false religion. But here he becomes a worshiper of Yahweh. What changed him? What happened? I think it's simply that he caught a vision of the glory of God. He saw what God does in delivering his people. 
He hears Moses' testimony. And indeed, he's heard it from other sources as well. And he sees the pillar of fire and smoke. And he he sees and tastes the manna. He sees and experiences all of these things. He experiences the glory of God. And he's changed. At the heart of our relationship with God is our vision of God's glory. Jethro is changed by the glory of God. And so he praises, he worships, he obeys I wonder, can we see the same markers in ourselves in response to our vision of the glory of God? Do we praise and worship the Lord? Do we enjoy the glory of God? I mean, think about that. Think think about that seriously for just a moment. Do you enjoy? I don't suggest that this is an easy or natural thing for us humans, but, but do you enjoy the glory of God? Sometimes you might experience that as we're singing, right? Maybe you experienced that earlier in our service as we were singing some of those great worship songs. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So maybe, maybe the songs help stir in your heart that feeling of joy in the glory of God. But I recognize, you know, not all of us Our musically inclined music doesn't speak to all of us in exactly the same way. But but how do you experience the glory of God then? Do you experience it as you you read the words of Scripture? I mean, I think that's, that's the ultimate place where we ought to experience the glory of God, right? At least in this life, until the day when we see our Savior face to face, when we encounter the pages of Scripture, when we read about Moses at the burning bush as he sees the the bush that burns and is not consumed and hears the voice of God saying, take your sandals off your feet because the place where you're standing is holy ground. I am who I am. Or when we see Isaiah standing in the throne room of God and, and hearing the seraphim saying, holy, 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 and he himself is undone because of the holiness of God. Or, or when we read... Uh, as we did last week in John's Gospel, when we read the words of Jesus, he says, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never hunger. The one who believes in me will never thirst. Can you hear, can you see the glory of God here? And does it cause joy in your heart? We ought to be those who rejoice in the glory of God. Our hearts should be filled with joy. It doesn't happen all the time. Okay, it's okay if sometimes it doesn't, but does it ever? Do you experience joy when you consider the person and the character of God? And, and my, my warning to you, friends, my, my warning, my admonition to you is this. If you don't ever experience joy in your contemplation of God's glory, then let's talk about that. Let's find out why that is, because that's a mark that there's something wrong. We are those who should rejoice in the glory of God. And by the same token, we are those who ought to obey in response to God's glory. We are those whose lives ought to have been changed by God's glory. And so the rest of Scripture, indeed the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, is full of, 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 of imperatives, admonitions, ways that we are to live our lives, not in order to become pleasing to God, but in response to the fact that we have been made in Christ pleasing to God. Because we are those who, if we have truly encountered the glory of God in the face of Christ, should be led to obey. So do you see these, these marks in, in yourself? Joy, worship, 
obedience. God's glory changes us. At the heart of our relationship with God is our vision of God's glory. Have you caught a vision? Have you seen God's glory? We see God's glory changing Jethro here. We see God's glory has changed Moses as well as the chapter continues. Look at, chapter thir- uh, look at verse 13 of chapter 18 and consider uh, what happens next. It says, the next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses is acting as a good shepherd. He's acting as a teacher. He teaches the people God's word. He acts as a judge, helps them decide their disputes. All very good, right? Yes. But Jethro has some concerns. Jethro has some concerns, as you know, if you know the passage. Look at what Jethro says, and look at the counsel that he gives Moses in response to this. Verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. Typical father-in-law, right? Sorry. What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. And so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace." Here's Jethro's counsel. It's spurred, apparently, in the first place by Jethro's concern for Moses himself, Moses' own sanity and ability to endure, right? You're not able to handle this. It's going to wear you out. You need to find a better way. There's also an underlying, I think, concern for, uh, for the peace of the people, for, for justice itself to be served. No doubt with this many people, each of them coming to Moses with each and every single dispute, that meant delays In the resolution of disputes and delays of justice rarely serve the ends of justice, right? And so Jethro's concerned about all that. And so he says, if you do it this way, then everybody will be at peace. We'll go their ways in peace. Jethro's counsel, in essence, we could summarize as a divestment of authority, right? He says, find other people, other men who are able, who are gifted in this way, and and divest your authority and, and, and assign leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. It's a divestment of authority. Yeah? There is a, uh, an inbuilt God-honoring design of this system that Jethro is counseling Moses to undertake. It honors the God-given principle of rest, which we just talked about last week, right? As God gave the gift of the manna, and he also, at the same time, gave them instructions about how to observe the Sabbath to, to rest on the seventh day. And that principle of rest, we talked about that last week, this honors that principle that Moses also needs rest. He needs to be able to to not bear the burden of leading all the people all the time in every single dispute, every single situation. It also provides for a God-derived authority. 
Uh, verse 23 in the English Standard Version, which I just read, says, if you do this, the Lord will direct you. Some of your translations will say something more like, if you do this and the Lord so directs you, which I think actually gets the point across a little bit better. That's what Jethro is saying. He's saying, he's saying in essence, this is my counsel, and if, if God's on board with it too, then you should do it, <laughs> Right? In other words, Jethro is submitting his own counsel to the authority of God. He's recognizing that he, Jethro, is not the one in charge of what happens in Israel. He's just giving his best advice, his best counsel, and recognizing that at the end of the day, it's Yahweh, it's God, who's going to decide what actually happens in Israel. So it's a God-derived authority. But you see that, that God-derived authority even in the outworking of the plan. Moses is instructed to find men who are able who won't take a bribe. In other words, they're men of integrity. They're men who are already leaders, most likely. And he's supposed to equip them and train them so that they can fulfill their duty in judging and leading the people. This is the idea that, that Paul will later latch on to as he gives instructions for the organization of the church. And so we read in 2 Timothy 2.2, as Paul uh, instructs Timothy, who was kind of overseeing all of the churches in the city of Ephesus, he says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Sound familiar? It's the same idea. It's the same thing. It's the same thing going on. Saying you can't do it all yourself. You've got to find others. Find others who can help bear the burden. This system that Jethro uh, recommends to Moses recognizes the God-inspired giftings of others as well. Moses, after all, is not the only person capable of leading the people. He's not the only person capable of, of deciding disputes. There are others there. Sometimes leaders fall into this error of thinking that, that, that they're the only ones who can do it. That's never true. It certainly wasn't true in Israel. And so Jethro says to Moses, find those men whom God has gifted. Find those men who are able and equip them, appoint them to these leadership positions. He has to identify those who bore ample evidence of their commitment to the Lord. And that's, that's what we do in the church too, isn't it? That's why we don't expect the pastor to do everything. Right? That's why we don't expect the pastor, that's why we don't expect the elders to do everything. That's why we are so diligent or, or we're, so, we're so vociferous about trying to get everybody involved. Because we believe that God did not give gifts only to the elders. He gave gifts to every single person in the church. That's why Paul will say in Ephesians that he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is also why, incidentally, that we want to be very careful about how we choose elders. I mean, in one sense, the elders of the church are the heirs of this principle, this counsel that Jethro is giving Moses, of, of divesting authority into a group of, of men who help lead the congregation of Israel. That's the source uh, initially of the, of the synagogue system, which became common throughout Israel and then the diaspora. And then that becomes the basis for the way the church is organized in the New Testament. And so, as a church, as we think about who God has chosen to be elders in this small local body, we want to follow Jethro's advice to Moses. Find those able men who, 
who are men of integrity, who won't take a bribe, who are able to lead. And then, of course, the New Testament adds other qualifications onto that as well. But the point is, we're not just looking for warm bodies who are able to do the job. We're looking for those whom God has called. We're looking for shepherds. We need to be careful about that. Moses, as it turns out, follows Jethro's counsel, 24 Verse 24 and following, Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Now, it would be easy just to stop there, but I want to point one last thing out to you. Moses has just followed his father-in-law's advice. He has divested himself of authority. And I think that's a big deal. I think that's a big deal. Let's remember who Moses is. Moses, when we first met him in Exodus 2, as an adult at least, thought of himself as the one who would be the leader and judge of Israel. He went out and he killed an Egyptian for beating an Israelite slave. And then the next day, uh, Exodus 2 tells us, he went out and found two Israelites arguing, and he set himself up as a judge. He said, why are you arguing with your brother? And the Israelite said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And of course, at reading it with with the knowledge of the rest of the story as we have, we see that as a foreshadowing of what's going to come in the future. But aside from that, remember what happens in Moses' own life. He flees Egypt, he goes out to the wilderness, goes to Midian, where he first meets Jethro, right? But something's changed. When he started out, he wanted to be the judge. He thought of himself as the judge. And now he is. (laughs) Now he has everything that he wanted when he was 40. He's got the leadership of the people. He has the respect of the people. Everybody who has a problem is coming to him. Before, he tried to solve one little problem, and he got, he got tarred and feathered, so to speak, right? Now everybody's coming to him with every problem. That's, some, that's, that's a heavy drug right there, right? It would be so easy for Moses at this point to say, no, I've arrived I've gotten what I was made for. God called me, after all. God set me up over this people. I will be the judge. I will exercise my power. I will fulfill my destiny. But he doesn't. He hears Jethro's counsel and he says, you know, it's a good idea. Let's do that. He divests himself of authority. What's happened in Moses? Why has Moses changed from the person who wanted to be the judge in chapter 2 to a person who is willing to relinquish that judging authority here in chapter 18? What's changed? I think it's the same thing that changed Jethro. It's his vision, his encounter, his experience with God. Moses has experienced God. Moses stood at the burning bush And he he heard the voice of God out of the fire, the the bush that burned and wasn't consumed. He heard God saying, I am who I am. He saw God bringing judgment after judgment against the Egyptians. He saw God's glory. He saw God destroy the Egyptian military in the Red Sea. And all of this, of course, is setting the stage for what we're going to see in chapter 19 
next week when we see the glory of God descending on the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, and thunder and fire and, and earthquake and storm. What's changed Moses? Moses has seen the glory of God. Moses has encountered the glory of God. At the heart of our relationship with God is our vision of God's glory. Moses is changed by it. Jethro is changed by it. The Israelites are changed by it. The question for us this morning is how have we been changed by the glory of God? How have we been changed by our encounter with the glory of God? Now, maybe you're sitting there asking, how can I see God's glory like that? I haven't seen those things. Isn't it so easy to read these stories and go, oh, if I'd only seen that, if I'd only encountered that, if I could only taste the manna myself. I, I had a conversation once when I was uh, doing open air evangelism in New York City, which is not an experience that I expect to ever replicate for a lot of reasons. But I remember having a conversation with a guy there on the streets of New York City and, and, and sharing the gospel with him. And he said, you know, I won't try to do his Brooklyn accent. He goes, you know, if I could just see the Virgin Mary herself come down from heaven and tell me that this is true, then I'd believe it. And even as a worldly wise 18-year-old, I knew that's garbage. And it is, isn't it? Because what Jesus says is, even if somebody rises from the dead, if you won't believe the Bible, you won't believe. Or as he says to the disciples, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You know, we get so caught up thinking, if only I could see things like this, then I'd be changed. Brothers and sisters, that's not what we need. We don't need to see miracles. We don't need to see the parting of the Red Sea. What we need is the Holy Spirit to intervene in our hearts. And in the scriptures, he does. If we're asking how we can see God's glory, the chief way, the best way to see God's glory is to contemplate the person of Jesus Christ as he is presented to us in this book. And in that way, we will see even more than did the Israelites in Moses' day. Consider John 1, 14 through 18. I encourage you, just pause now. Even close your eyes if you can do that without falling asleep. And just listen Listen to the word of the Lord. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Listen again. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And again, 2 Corinthians 3. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is 
the Spirit? What is the best way for us to behold the glory of God, to be changed by the glory of God? Consider the person of the Son of God. Consider his glory and rejoice in him. Take a minute and do that just now. Just in silence where you're sitting. Consider the glory of God, how it is revealed to us in the face of his Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ.